You're listening to the Skift Podcast. As we look ahead to Skift Global Forum East in Dubai, happening this December 12th through the 14th, Skift founder and CEO Rafid Ali sits down with Middle East reporter Josh Corder and Skift Advisory Managing Director Joe Naiman to discuss a big picture view on growth and dynamics in the Middle East. For more information on how to attend or view Skift Global Forum East, visit live.skift.com. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to another edition of Skift Podcast. Uh, today we are going into a topic that is quite near and dear to our hearts, which is the future of travel in the Middle East region. We have been covering Middle East with a lot of intensity over the last, fair to say, two years, really two, three years, uh, and it's become uh, a large part of our business as well. Uh, it got really a bolt of energy when we hired Josh Corder, uh, who's uh, on this podcast, and we're going to come to him in a second. He joined a few months ago and is now covering Middle East um, travel industry daily for us from a news perspective. Also on the podcast, I have Joe Naiman, who is uh, the, the managing director at Skift Advisory, also a very new Skifter because we acquired the company that he was part of 2031, two months ago. And um, he he uh, is from the, from the larger Middle East region, but lives here in the U.S., uh, and uh, we wanted to do a podcast on what's happening in Middle East, less to do with the current headlines, but the effect of the current headlines on the future trajectory of tourism in Middle East. Uh, fair to say that uh, it, it has had a chilling effect on uh, the conversations about travel in Middle East, so we're going to get into a bunch of those conversations. So for us, from a SCIF perspective, uh, we look at the larger MENA region, so so uh, the Gulf region, um, larger Middle East, but also the North Africa region. So for us, they're, they're, they're all interconnected. This is how geopolitics also uh, works in those terms. And um, there's been a lot of momentum uh on investments into the region, into the growth of the tourism into the region, as well as particularly coming out of COVID, 2022 and 2023 has been very good for the region in terms of tourism. So uh, I want to first go to Joe. Joe, so you uh, not only have you worked in the region, you're from the region uh, as well. Um, and we, we now, Skift Advisory, works with a lot of clients in the region as well. So from your perspective, just give a quick overview of the state of MENA region's tourism from your perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rafael, and, and happy to, to share my perspective on this. Um, the best way for me to describe what's happening in the Middle East is to sort of break it down into three groups. Um, you know, first of all, actually, before I even get into that, you know, we say the Middle East, and even before everything that's going on right now, there, there's always been the biggest barrier is the perception of safety uh, in the Middle East. And, and this has only been exacerbated by what's happening currently. Uh, now, keeping that in mind, you know, a lot of people who are traveling to the Middle East, or who might think about traveling to the Middle East, um, you know, they have that uh, mindset that the Middle East is, is is one region, but there are so many different, and I know everyone here knows it, there are so many different unique destinations within the Middle East that are completely safe. And I, I know I always give the example of, you know, I left my, my phone at a table at a Starbucks in the UAE, and it was there hours later, no one had even touched it. 
Like it's, it's that safe in certain parts of the Middle East. So the way that I break down what's happening in the Middle East is really into three categories. And the first category are those destinations that are very close to what's happening um, in, uh, in Israel and Palestine. Uh, and so, you know, obviously Lebanon and Syria, failed states, not much happening there from a tourism perspective, but Jordan is taking a big hit and they're very nearby. Uh, we're seeing a very drastic slowdown in visitation to Jordan. We're seeing a slowdown uh, in terms of um, um, you know, activity, development of, of the destination and experiences and things like that that are happening in Jordan as well. Um, you know, it's not that they're being canceled altogether, but they're, we're seeing folks saying, let's push this out to 2024, let's wait a little bit longer. Uh, and then you have the second category, uh, which are destinations that somewhat neighbor where, where the conflicts are, are happening right now. And that would be, in my head, Egypt and Turkey. I know Turkey technically is not in the Middle East, but we'll consider it as part of the Middle East for this discussion. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing somewhat of a slowdown in those uh, geographic areas. But you know, the security in those areas has been extremely strong. They, a lot of their economy depends on tourism. They understand that, um, you know, that, that it's not a game, right? They have to really take this very seriously and, and they're doing everything they can. And then you have the third category, you know, whether you're talking about some of the, the other North African countries like Morocco and Tunisia or some of the Gulf states um, that are also being impacted because they're part of the Middle East but not, uh, you know, not directly from a, uh, um, you know, being so close to what's happening on the ground in Israel and Palestine. Now, all of that said, um, you know, the other impact that we're seeing across the Middle East, you know, even and especially in, in places where travel and tourism is the bread and butter of those economies, you can't just come out and, and be the whole, you know, hospitality, smiley face person coming and welcoming people to your destination anymore, because there is this feeling that, uh, you know, that, that there is something, um, you know, painful that's happening in the Middle East. And but yet you, you need this industry, you need people to come. So it, across the Middle East, we're sort of seeing this dichotomy of folks who want to welcome, but at the same time have to have a little bit more of a of um, a serious face because of everything that's happening is is uh, very serious. Uh, so, Josh, you you live in Dubai. You've been living there for five years, maybe. Yep, correct. And uh, have have been covering the region and the rise, particularly of Dubai, of Abu Dhabi, of Qatar, of Saudi. Um, all the investment going into it. You were at the Dubai Air Show last week. So, uh, which 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 went on and had record order. So, from your sense on the ground, give a sense of uh, where things are now. So, like you're saying, I've been in Dubai a little while now, and I've had family that have worked here on and off for two decades. So they've seen all sorts as well. Dubai has always been very good at. Avoiding these topics, avoiding talking about them, avoiding kind of directly taking part in them in any way, avoiding taking a stance. They will normally be in the middle in, a, in whatever way they can. Um, it's very much a case of you know, don't talk about it, and it, you know, the show must go on. That's really the, the Dubai approach. The Dubai Air Show last week was obviously uh, massive. It was full of people, um, but it was very much. Security was the the heaviest it's ever been. I was asking around, and you know, there were the 
I won't go into details, but there were a lot of police, there were a lot of security to get in, a lot of checks. Uh, There were people telling me it would take them five hours to get from the security check to the the show itself. Um, Yeah, five hours. So that's Dubai's way of doing it. They always find a way to carry on with the show, whether that's not addressing a topic, having more security and not addressing that security, or you know, finding some other way to show everything is fine. Another event that was going on uh, last week was the Dubai Watch Week. Uh, obviously a totally different segment. It's uh, luxury watches and jewellery. Um, but even that, I was there as well. People were talking about it. They were saying, yeah, I can't believe Dubai is doing this. something going on. It's over luxury and so on. But, you know, on Dubai's side, they weren't saying much about it. Dubai has basically always had this stance of neutrality and being the place that is seemingly immune to these situations. It's mm-hmm. always seen as the, the bubble in the Middle East. Uh, and the- also... What, what happened during COVID, um, Dubai was one of the fastest to recover, uh, not only in the region, but in the world, I would say, because they, because of, of, of how they're structured, they're able to contain their very good at efficiency of um, vaccinations, etc., uh, in general, uh, security, as, as you mentioned. And it looks like they, 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 they did and have come out of pandemic even way stronger than, than anybody entering it. So I think something a lot of people don't realize about Dubai is that it is really, really small. It's about the size of Houston, Texas, give or take a few, uh, you know, a few square uh, square miles either side. So yeah, in that in that scenario, they were really able to sort of contain the amount of pandemic. They reopened for international tourism in July 2020, and it was mm. less the way I see it. It was less about the immediate benefit of travelers. Um, as much as it was about a big marketing campaign for them to push them further into later in the year and into 2021. Because then when people were looking for their holidays in December time or in January the following year, they had six, seven months of Dubai content, Dubai marketing, Dubai saying it's a safe place to visit. So that was them kind of playing the long game. And that's always what Dubai is doing, really. They're always sort of playing the long game biding their time, thinking ahead. You know, people think of it as a very reactive place that moves very quickly. But really, they're always thinking about how they can nurture their image and how, how they can convert travelers in the long run. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the COP, COP28 is coming up. This is the big climate um, summit that's coming up that I guess uh, some of the some of the pre-stuff has already started happening uh, as well. And... Um, by the way, our, I, I should have said this at the start. Uh, we are doing our own Skift Global Forum East in Dubai in um, three weeks from now, uh, December 12 to 14. That's at the Royal Atlantis, the new swanky um, hotel. So we're obviously very, very invested in the region. We will have a lot of these discussions with people that are speaking there um, as well. So this will be a very big topic of discussion so uh from a from a cop 28 perspective what's your sense um of the effect on the ground so cop 28 as uh, as many people know is said to have about you know, 35 to 45 thousand people 
in the city at once. People are likely that effect. It runs from sort of the end of November to the, the, the middle of December. Um, people are likely that to imagine Dubai on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve or a public holiday for uh, a several week period. So mm -hmm. ADRs are you know, through the roof. Uh, occupancy rates, everyone is saying 90% or higher. Um, and that's all from these, these corporate bookings. That's all from these delegations booking. So it's not necessarily that spending is going to increase that much around the city, but in terms of, you know, what looks good on the sheet of paper, Dubai can say that for this period, all of these delegates have their city completely full, but it's, it's not going to have a, much of a, a leisure market impact. There was also a lot of momentum last year coming out of the World Cup for obviously Qatar and then for the larger region as well. Um, Joe, I'll go to you from your perspective, uh, sort of post-World Cup buzz for the region. Has that translated really Has from, from your perspective? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. We ran some research right after the World Cup uh, last year, and it definitely has created some buzz for the region. But one of the destinations that it created the most buzz for was Morocco. Uh, because of how well the team did during the World Cup. So it was very interesting to see that sort of unexpected, um, uh, you know, blip in the data uh, when it came to Morocco. But yeah, the, the World Cup certainly did improve uh, people's perceptions of the region, uh, the desire to come to, to the region, not in the longer term, but in the nearer term. Uh, and overall, it was very, very good for the region. And Morocco was having a record year uh, well, even leading into the World Cup, but also post-World Cup, they had a huge bump, um, partly as a result of that, until the earthquake hit earlier this year. Um, and it looks like that they, they, they are well on their way to recovery. I'm guessing there's some cancellations um, as a result of this war happening, just because, uh, just because even though they're nowhere near this region, but, uh, but that's the unfortunate part. In terms of, um, well, so, so Josh, your perspective, um, Cut, let's say, cut, this has been a year since the World Cup, I guess, started because it finished a little later um, in December. Uh, has Qatar been able to capitalize on uh, the investment? I'm not sure that I see that return on investment just yet. Uh, there is a, a situation of uh, quite substantial uh, oversupply in the market now. They, uh, they, they rushed to build a lot of hotel rooms. They got the majority of those open, uh, filled them for, for a month, and then they uh, are struggling to fill those again now. Um, if I were to, to say the, the silver lining that came out of it, and it's to segue into a bit of a, a different topic, is the Qatar World Cup really showed travelers and policymakers in the region just how easy it is to interconnect the GCC states, how nearby Dubai is from Qatar, how nearby Saudi is from Qatar, and how all of those states rush to introduce specific, you know, quote unquote, FIFA visas in and out of the country. Um, so I'm not sure that the World Cup has had the immediate shot in the arm that the Qataris hoped, but I think it's been quite a surprising you know, catalyst for this idea of cross-country cross travel between the GCC and the, the, the eventual you know, master plan of the, 
the unified visa, how can Qatar benefit from the success of Dubai, benefit from the success of Saudi, and so on. So I think that has been the the biggest achievement of the World Cup, in my opinion. Yeah, fascinating. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, Josh, I I love hearing what you're saying, because that is a a personal mission of mine, is uh, to see more of an ideally joint itineraries between you know, within the UAE alone, let's start there, but then also between various GCC states, uh, because um, it's just such an opportunity. You know, folks don't travel to the Middle East every year. We want them to. We want them to come back. But when you do travel, why not hit up um, a couple of destinations at the same time? And I think that there's so much room for, for more collaboration across the Middle East. What's the status of the GCC Unified Visa? Do we know? <laughs> The status is it has been approved by the interior ministers and it will likely be rolled out uh, next year or 2025. And this we're talking GCC as in the Gulf region, not really the full Middle East, but the Gulf region. Yeah. Uh, And in terms of um, source markets to the region, Let's let's talk about that because you know much like Europe, like one of the one of the things that you learn as you cover these destinations, people say Europe is the world's largest destination from a content perspective. That's true, but it's like seventy percent of their travel is intra Europe, um, which long term is likely to change because of the demographics there. Uh, but in terms of the the intra country travel, like Saudi. Is was is continues to be a huge source market for many countries in the region. One of the reasons why many countries in that region are worried about Saudi is if Saudi develops into this powerhouse, a lot of the internal domestic will will stay domestic, um, and so certainly that's there. So from your perspective, any of you or Joe, you want to go categorize the source markets? There's the the GCC, there's Europe, there's South Asia, and there are others. Yeah, for sure. So GCC, as you mentioned, Rafat, is going to be the number one source market for the Middle East. And that will continue in, in the short, medium, and most likely in the long term as well. Um, the, the other market, as you've also mentioned, would be the European markets uh, traveling to the Middle East, for, especially in, in the off-season for the European market. So to get a little bit of sun and sand and beach and um, you know, fly and flop, as we call them sometimes as well. Um, so that has traditionally been the case. But um, there are neighbors to the east that uh, are uh, I'm very excited about what's happening in India. And I think they're going to continue to be a, a huge potential um, source market to the Middle East. Uh, as that middle class grows, um, we're, we're seeing more and more folks traveling to the Middle East and Middle East catering to, uh, to those travelers as well. Uh, so I'm very excited about seeing more of those types of travelers. Um, as far as the Far East, it's, it's slow. Uh, return, especially of Chinese travelers, is slow. Uh, right now, we're seeing that uh, Chinese travelers are traveling to within a four-hour radius of where they are, and little by little, and not as fast as we would have hoped, are, are traveling a little bit further afield. Um, so I think it will take a couple, you know, maybe another year or two before we start to see the numbers that will start to make us feel comfortable again from a Chinese traveler perspective. Um, and then you, of course, you have, um, you know, the Americas and especially from the U.S. Uh, I know a lot of the Middle Eastern destinations love American travelers because we come with a lot of uh, big bucks as well. We, st- we tend to stay longer because a little bit further afield, so we spend more. Um, and so I think we're going to continue to see 
um, a little bit uh, of growth from that perspective, not as quickly now because of the war and everything that's happening. Uh, but we will see a little bit of growth from from those markets as well. And perception changing. I mean, I guess the, pers- the, the so-called perception changing goes in concentric circles. Like GCC, you don't have to change perception. They live there, so that that's there. Um, India, South Asia has historic connections. A lot of... Um, a lot of people from that part of the world work in that region. So, so there's that family connection as well. Then there's the, the bucket of Europe there that needs convincing, if you will, but are probably more prone to traveling, as you said, in off-season and for other reasons as well. Uh, and, and we haven't even come to the business travel part uh, at all, but we, we, we will in a bit. And then we're talking about U.S. and and Americas, which is probably the hardest nut to crack in terms of perception change. So, um, Josh, from your perspective, um, how how good a job you think countries have done in the region in terms of perception? In in terms of uh, the U.S. market specifically, or just in terms of generally, like Dubai has done an incredible job. Abu Dhabi, um, you would say probably up there as well in terms of change of of creating these mega cities that are magnets no matter what something interesting about this uh in the the race for changing perceptions is basically dubai had the first mover advantage so now if any other nearby gcc state wants to do something similar they will naturally be compared to dubai often to a, a, a less favorable degree and then people will go let's go to dubai anyway so I think uh, destinations have uh, caught on to that fact. And you see Abu Dhabi marketing itself as the, the cultural capital of the UAE. It has the, the Guggenheim, it has the Louvre Museum, it has uh, various other museums, and it also has the, the biggest focus on theme parks, Ferrari World, uh, various other roller coasters, uh, more and more theme parks to come. So that's how Abu Dhabi is done. It's basically uh, maybe conceded as an unfair word, but accepted that it can't compare itself or it can't help but be compared to Dubai. So it has to do something differently. Amman is doing a similar thing, which is very much trying to stay true to its like Islamic roots, stay as a heritage tourism destination and push that envelope as far as it can and push that market as far as it can, which kind of naturally gives it a GCC tourism focus. Now, Saudi Arabia, obviously, has the biggest perception issue. Conservative Kingdom closed off till 2019. You don't need me to tell you all of the various things that people have against them. They are currently where Dubai was perhaps 10 years ago in terms of people not quite believing all of this is going to materialize, not believing it's going to be a safe place to visit, not believing it's going to be worth their money, probably the biggest one. The Saudi Arabia's job, it has Dubai as a proof of concept, but it's not trying to be Dubai, it's trying to be something even bigger. I think people right now have a hard time fathoming something even bigger than Dubai. I think Saudi still has a way to go before that happens. They need the domestic market to really embrace these new products they're doing and organically share those experiences with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, and have uh, 
so Dubai has done obviously this very brilliantly because they, um, if you look at the India market, every spectrum of tourism comes to Dubai. Like it's not just luxury tourism. Uh, they have diversified over the years into uh, middle class and all different types of people coming to Dubai to visit as well. Um, from a Saudi perspective, at least the one that you hear, Josh, as you speak to the to, uh, to people in the ecosystem there, is the perception, the reality, the perception that I have sitting here is they're only focused on luxury travel because that's going to bring the biggest, uh, not just money, but also uh, reputation prestige. Is that unfair? No, I don't think that's unfair. I think what you have to understand about Saudi is their tourism ambition is tied to this thing called the Saudi Vision 2030, right. which is by the year 2030, in seven years, they're going to have a, an economy where tourism is the second biggest tourism driver behind oil, and they'll have uh, 150 million uh, domestic and international travelers combined. Um, to achieve that, people have this misconception that they're going to be uh, opening all of their hotels at once. Really, for the next few years, it's not about opening hotels. It's not about getting travelers. It's about a marketing campaign. Saudi Arabia is basically trying to pull off the biggest marketing campaign in human history. And to do that, they need coverage, they need headlines, they need eyeballs. To get eyeballs, it's far easier to sign and announce an outlandish Four Seasons Grand Hyatt, or even announce your own brand called Shebara on a space age, spaceship looking resort, than it is to announce, I shan't name brands, but than it is to announce 50 mid scale brands. Mm -hmm. So I think for the next two or three years, you're not going to see many of those things signed because it's really not their ambition. Their ambition now is purely get as many people in the world to look at Saudi Arabia, to think about Saudi Arabia, to know what Saudi Arabia is. And to do that, they will focus purely on luxury hotel signings. After that two, two to three year period where people start to know about the market, you will gradually see a shift, probably a quiet one, where more, <clears throat> excuse me, more mid-scale, lower-end or short-term rental agreements are signed. But for now, I don't see much of that happening. Joe, from your perspective, in terms of diversification of um, traveler type, what's your sense today? You obviously work with a bunch of people uh, in the region. Uh, I know you're, we, we now uh, have worked with Russell Khema as well, for instance. They're, they're trying to attract, for instance, Indian tourists or Indian weddings, if you will. Um, your sense of diversification? It's across the board in the Middle East. It just depends on the destination and, and within the country itself, what are the specific places that uh, you want folks to go to? Uh, we work in, in a destination, um, not to give it away here, where uh, they have amazing beach uh, areas and they just want people to come and spend the week on the beach and, and all you can eat and leave. And then there are also some amazing cultural and heritage aspects where they want people to come for for two to three weeks and spend more time and spend more money so they're going after the gamut of uh, of travelers so it just depends on the destination or on the country within the middle east and uh, the type of destinations that they have within uh, across the the gulf just to sort of focus on that since a lot of this conversation has focused around that as well um you know, I, I love Josh, your explanation of what's happening in Saudi Arabia. There is a focus, yes, on on the luxury market right now, and I, I also love what you said about you know capturing headlines, all about announceables, uh, and 
a lot of the strategy right now will be to focus on those luxury influencers, even if you will, because those are the people who are going to be telling everyone else about all the experiences that they've had and where they stayed and what the service was like, etc. So um, I find that there's a little bit more of a, of uh, a you know quote unquote a welcome for those types of travelers. Now that said, we are seeing um, some markets or some destinations within the Middle East that. Uh, are a little bit more mature from a tourism perspective that are also now realizing that we need to go after middle class, lower middle class, bring bring people over into um, into the Middle East um, so that uh, we, we get them to occupy our hotels and stay, stay a little bit longer and enjoy what we have as well. So um, there is a little bit of that. Uh, again, I'd probably slow when we're talking about Gulf countries. Um, but... Uh, more than I used to see uh, on that topic. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you don't. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. If you don't mind, just to sort of circle back on on something that Josh said earlier about Saudi Arabia as well, and that is, um, you know, I, I grew up in in the kingdom in the eighties and nineties, and um, you know, when I see the momentum that's uh, that's taking place right now in Saudi Arabia and where they were in the eighties or nineties compared to where they are today. Um, yes, it's going to take a little bit of time, but uh, I, I feel very hopeful and opportunistic that they're, that they're going to get there and they're going to achieve uh, these ambitions. And I love what they're doing from a marketing promotional perspective, because it's not just changing what Saudi Arabia is all about, but it's also changing what the Middle East is all about uh, in the minds of, of consumers. So um, very excited with, with everything that's happening in Saudi as well. Yeah, and the I guess the thing we 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 haven't discussed, but it it remains to be it should be said is the the reason why these countries are focused on tourism is diversification of their own economies and giving hope to a very youthful population in the world, meaning jobs and hope to um to the local populations. This is maybe less so in some of the smaller countries like UAE, but one hundred percent true for Jordan, one hundred percent true for Egypt, Morocco, Saudi. Um, uh, even Oman, I would say. And so all of these are very much uh, job creators for these economies and to give a, a, a different and a hopeful future beyond, I mean, there's reason, we, again, the, 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 the war's happening, but if an alternate view of the region is, here's how you create jobs and give more hope to the region and to people that are, that are working there. And that everybody has said, he said, vision 2030 is, is, has, said that um, Dubai and UAE's master plan, I don't know what the name of it is, but uh, that's a huge part of, of their focus as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the Arab Spring in the early 2010s was, was a big wake-up call for a lot of different destinations, and they realized that, uh, that they need to, uh, to diversify their economies in order to keep the vast majority of their populations, which are very young, uh, happy and occupied, and uh, and that's what they've been doing. Um, I love what's happening in the Middle East. Um, one of the numbers that I read not long ago was uh, the um, the number of of cell phones owned by Saudis, especially the youth, are are two cell phones per individual or around that number. And you know what that means is that they're connected. They're connected to the internet. They know what's happening on YouTube. They see what's happening in other parts of the world. They want some some of that as well. You know, within the parameters in which that's possible in those places, um, and um, and so 
absolutely. That that means that uh, we need to think about things differently and how we attract different uh, visitors and and how do we keep our um, our people happy and jobs and and uh, um, and, and all of that kind of stuff too. Um, one question I have, which is um, related to this, is is the role of the the the, the Middle East? I, I guess in this case, the Gulf Airlines. And the airports that they've built, the airports are a monument to their ambitions. Uh, certainly, Dubai proved that to to the world. Um, Abu Dhabi finally getting there. Um, Saudi uh, very much on that path. Uh, Turkey, one hundred percent on that path as well. Um, these are I'm talking airports, but then also their their flag carriers, and then the general competition among. It's a very very vibrant aviation market. So what's uh, what's your sense, Josh, of, of the role that these airlines have played? Yeah, I mean, you know, plans are nothing without the airlift, really. Um, you know, people have been talking a lot in this region about the return of Chinese travelers. They've been training staff for it, doing marketing campaigns, going over there and promoting themselves, but they can't, you know, they don't have the flights, so they, they oh. can't do it. It's, it's nothing without the airlift. You know, for a long time, it's basically been Emirates were on top and, and nobody else. Uh, then came uh, you know, Qatar Airways and they started to do things. The next big thing you're going to see is obviously Riyadh with Riyadh Air. And uh, the question is less, do the Saudis have the money to do it? Because obviously they do. It's a case of, is Riyadh a global base? Geographically, yeah, it's in the middle as much like Dubai is very much in the middle. But does it have that reputation? Does it have the manpower? Does it have the talent needed to run, you know, basically an airport which is trying to rival the busiest airport in the world, which is Dubai International? So I think Riyadh Air's ambitions are fabulous. I think they have everything they need to do it, apart from figuring out how they can unlock Riyadh and how to turn that into a city that will stand as a global connector to the rest of the world. Because Dubai was able to crack that code, uh, and I'd like to see how Riyadh can do that next. Another thing you're seeing is uh, there's a lot of small airlines that are sort of coming and going in this part of the world, whether it's the low-cost carriers or even... As recently as, as last week, on the other end of the market, there was a business class-only carrier announced that does flights between Riyadh and the Maldives, which is obviously a very popular route. There's a lot yeah. of uh, affluent Saudis that stay in the Maldives and similar locations. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that they can you know, build up the the reputation that others have done. What you find with most successful Middle Eastern carriers is they're so intrinsically tied to the image of that country that they'll have you know, government bailouts or they'll be in all the promotional campaigns or they, they, the success of tourism and hostility is the success of that airline. I think the Middle East carriers rely heavily on that kind of country image. And without that, I'm not sure they would do as well without that safety net under them. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting wrinkles, and um, that's an understatement, to come, uh, is is the rise of the Indian carriers and uh, and and you were there last week uh, at the Dubai Air Show, Air India, and between Air India and Indigo, uh, which is the two local Indian 
airlines now privately own both of them. Um, they're the biggest order of 1,000, 1,200 planes um, over the next decade, which means that the 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 hub status that Middle East or Gulf has had in terms of connecting people um, is going to be challenged, one hundred percent, with with these uh, with these Indian carriers and of course Riyadh Air is coming up, so that's a new entrant uh, that that wants that. Even though, as you reported, um, maybe last or like uh, two days ago, that Riyadh Air doesn't want to have a hub status uh, like Emirates has. So fascinating on how. You know, we're probably in in the next five years, this region will probably have the most change of any sector in travel. Um, and in five years, it'll be a totally different conversation um, that that we're having probably now. I mean, yeah, um, I mean, when you're starting from, from zero, every change you make, monumental or small, is going to look look enormous, right? Saudi Arabia loves to report that their their figures are going up by triple digits or double digits or whatever it is. That's because they're comparing it to literally the number zero, right? Outside of the religious tourism, that has obviously millions of people uh, coming for Hajj or Umrah, uh, which now obviously they've also um, simplified. And that's the hope that they don't, I'm I'm surprised they don't talk about it as much as you would assume, which is um, uh, the the people that are already coming for religious um, pilgrimage, and they're becoming probably certainly the lowest hanging fruit of moving people from there to other parts of the country into uh, maybe not the giga projects, but but whoever um, all all parts of the country. Yeah, there, I, uh, I could speak to that. I, they're definitely talking about that, and and do see that as an opportunity as well. Um, so, um, you know, I haven't seen specific strategies yet developed around it, but I know that they're out there. Yeah. I mean, that will always be there. It's not like that, that yeah. market is going to go away. So, so maybe they're, they're not prioritizing marketing wise, but they're definitely, I'm sure thinking about it. I mean, they've made it so much easier for us to go do Umrah. Um, used to be, there's a special visa and now you can go on any visa and do Umrah. There's, there's, uh, uh, I think that's one of the, one of the I guess the silent biggest weapons in the world. So uh, fascinating. We can keep on going for the next hour, two hours. There's so much to happen. I would uh, highly recommend anybody li- who is now listening to, to this, it means you're very interested in the region. Please come to our Skiff Gold Forum East um, in Dubai or join us online. And obviously you can follow the coverage on Skift as well. We have the CEOs and top executives of pretty much every topic every company that every company every destination that we discussed here uh over the last half an hour 45 minutes and um we have the ceo of ria there that we just mentioned we have the c the number two at emirates that is um speaking as well uh we have uh the heads of tourism are pretty much every every country every region uh there as well so it'll be a fascinating conference at a time where you would assume that some of the discussion has come off travel and tourism, but the opposite, at least in terms of why the need for travel and tourism is there, is very apparent. So I hope to see all of you there um, in three weeks and uh, we'll be back. Thank you, folks. All right. Thank you. Thank you, folks. This has been the Skift Podcast. Thank you for listening. 